But yeah, I have had that song stuck in my head for like the last three days or since whenever you showed it to me. It's a good song. Well, it's not. It's not. It's but... not a good song at all. It's actually kind of a terrible song, but one of those that you can dance to. Yeah. Just yeah. why is it? <laughs> I still think, oh, it was not a hit. It was not. Oh, how do you know about it then? Because I, I think way back in high school, like sophomore year or something, a friend had shown it to me. Oh my god, and, is that old? Yeah. Oh. Um, and then maybe she'd shown it to me because they were going to be at the UCO summer and KJ One Hundred Three oh. end of summer bash concert. I forgot you said you saw yeah. it live. Oh yeah, I saw Paradiso Girls, I saw uh, Jason Derulo and Sean Paul, and it was, I think, free. Nice. Because, and they were just playing, like, on the campus, like, next to the, not even, like, at the football stadium. Like, it was just in one of the fields that, like, they practice in. Oh my god! Yeah, I think it was, like, <laughs> where the tennis courts are. Like, it was, I don't know. It was hilarious. That is really funny. Um, But yeah. So just know, like, this entire episode, in my head, I'm going, Patron, tequila, me and my margaritas. Whatever. Yeah. I know. You know, it's fine. It's fine. But we're not drinking margaritas. We are not. We drink wine. Yay! Although, <laughs> I could totally go for a margarita. I know. I could also totally go for a margarita. I... So, I've never made margaritas with, like, a blender, because I've never had a good blender. Oh, but you have one now. I have a good one now. We need I to have, make marks. I have a ninja, but Well, yes, we, do. we should do that sometime soon, I think. We should. But, hello, everyone. Hello. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And this is episode 12. Yes, it is. And, yeah, I still want a margarita. Me too. I, <laughs> I you've I'm gotten like, my head mm. like stuck on that. I will say it kills me that like you think of a nice tequila and I was like, oh, Trump. I'm like, no. What would you say your tequila is? Your go-to good tequila? I don't really drink tequila. I oh. don't. But if you ask any bartender. Like what do they think about trying? Oh. They hate. They're like that's shit. That's trash. I don't because it's the it's the bougie quote unquote one that's expensive. So people think it's like oh it's amazing. This tastes great. There's so much better tequila out there. It's true. Have you ever had El Himador? Because I actually really like that one. I don't. Is that just like a normal gold tequila? Um, I think it's actually silver. Okay, then maybe because I I only. When I do drink tequila, I only drink silver. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I don't like... I'm not a big fan of the tequila taste. Oh. And, See, mm-hmm. there's something about it. Like, if I'm taking a shot of tequila, I <laughs> like it to be gold. With oh salt and lime. Uh, I say this like I do it. Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> no. See, my mouth just started watering in preparation to vom. <laughs> well, um, please don't. I'll try my best. But, you know a word that sounds very similar to Patron? Patreon. <laughs> Boo. Boo. I give that two thumbs down. Well, but I give our Patreon two thumbs up. <laughs> yes. So we are sharing some fun things on there. Again, we've got our murder minis. Um, I recently posted the sangria recipe from our 
Well, from I was about to call it our Fourth of July episode, but it was not. It was the, just it the episode wasn't. we recorded. Yeah, it was just the on one we the recorded July. on the Fourth. But also, you know, it's just there's all of these things are for Patreon subscribers only. So mm-hmm. go ahead and check it out, and every penny counts. It you, does. You can't donate a penny. You can donate as little as a dollar. Yeah, but it's a dollar a month, and that's I. I think for a lot of people, that's that's very doable. It's very doable. So anyway, check it out. Yeah. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us yes. here on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. Just, you know. Yeah, you can uh, follow us, subscribe to us. I know on uh, SoundCloud you can follow and subscribe, which I don't yes. really know what the difference is. But, um. I don't either, <laughs> actually. Because I'm like, wouldn't they be the same but yeah but make so. sure y'all um you know follow us on our social medias on instagram on twitter and we actually have a facebook now yep we have facebook so um you can keep an eye on us there we post a lot of facebook has a lot of stuff from our instagram yeah and um just links to um our episodes every time we post them mm-hmm. uh but you know if you want to be up to date with all of our content and all of our going ons definitely you know subscribe yeah and we will be doing some type of social media contest where the winner yes. gets to pick our wine i mentioned this a few episodes back and it's definitely going to happen and yes uh, but yeah so be sure and check that out because we would you know love to interact with y'all and chat with y'all and also um, if you aren't interested in picking our wine, maybe you're not a wine drinker, whatever, that's that's your prerogative. Do it. Why but are if you, you listening to us? Well, because you like the murder. murder. The murder. That's you know, <laughs> the other big part, the blood. <laughs> uh, but um, we do have um, a gift for you as well. If you look on our Patreon page and decide you want to be one of our top tier donors you actually will be able to suggest topics to us and kind of be the director of an episode. So, you know, win the contest, choose the wine, become a Patreoner, and choose the topic. I know. Good. Whichever is your fancy. Anyway. So, (laughs) um, aside from all of our social stuff... Yes. What's, uh... Oh, I know what I want to talk to you about. Oh, tell me. Staircase. Yes. So we're kind of behind on this, but we've been meaning to talk about it and we have yet to touch base. I know because we've both finished it and, um, what what are, I, okay. So I, when watching it, I was like, oh, I totally see their point. I think he might be innocent. But uh-huh. then the more I looked into it, the more... Because the the episode... In, sorry, spoilers are coming up. Spoilers alert. If you, if you don't want to hear anything about the staircase... Hit fast forward a couple of times. Yeah, skip ahead, you know, I don't know, two, three minutes or something. But um, towards the end, because it's very biased towards him, obviously. Absolutely. The, the camera crew, the documentary makers got are following him around. And they're not following the DA around. So all of the stuff you get is either what his lawyers are telling him. Yeah. It's from their perspective. And yep. even, like, the news reports and stuff that you get about what the DA is doing 
it's filtered in with commentary from the the lawyers you know yeah. talking about like oh this is bullshit why couldn't they do this why couldn't they do this you know why why couldn't they perform the autopsy on the woman who died in germany why couldn't they do it you know in texas where they uh where they exhumed her why right. do they have to bring her all the way here exactly i don't and it's you know something like that where you're like yeah what the fuck why couldn't they just because how it's presented but it's definitely something you need to take um you know take a step back and look at it with perspective i yep. think that is something with a lot just a lot of the crime documentaries um making a murderer was very similar and that was that was one that it took me a couple years to really step back and be like okay this was really biased towards him like in his favor yeah i um i think those documentaries are created by the same people oh or same group don't quote me on that but i'm pretty sure that i saw uh-huh. that in one of the netflix promos but you're absolutely right and when it comes to you know, while I was watching it, I think the first half, I was just like, wow, shit, I think he could totally be innocent. Mm-hmm. And then, as it went on, I was more and more convinced of his guilt. Absolutely. And a lot of it had to do with, I still don't feel like there was a good explanation for how there was so much freaking blood. Yeah, because I... And they do it multiple times, you know, showing how, you know, she she fell from, like, the second stair, hit her head, and then kept slipping, which hit her head more. And I just don't... I, I, there are a lot of things that I don't necessarily uh, believe. Like, yeah. in a lot of that, especially with... Like, one of the things... I don't remember what podcast we were listening to. Was it My Favorite Murder? Maybe. I think so. Where they were talking about staircase as well. And they mentioned stuff like um, how it was... It, it, in the in the murder, he is telling everyone that, oh, you know, they had a couple of bottles of wine. She, you know, took some, I believe, might have been Valium or something. Yeah. I, um, I and so. then they went out to the pool and chatted for a couple hours. And she went back up. He came in like an hour later. But what the documentary doesn't mention is it was, like, in the 50 degrees. It was, like, 50 degrees outside. Because yeah. it's December, I think, in North Carolina. Yeah. And it's fucking cold. And he's saying, like, oh, I was out there in shorts and a t-shirt and stuff. And I'm like, I don't believe you are. Granted, I'm someone who, when I drink, I get very hot. I yeah. would very much go, you know, be fine sitting outside. But I would go and sit outside for, like, 15, 20 minutes. Right. Being outside not... for like two, three hours. Yeah. Seems a bit uh, like a bit much. Yeah. And then also, because I, I, I think I think it was Valium. But he mentions, oh, she was taking it throughout the day. And that's not something you take throughout the day. Right. That's, uh, you take a rep for your bed and you're knocked out. Especially if you have like two balls of wine. True. But... That's true. So, yeah, I definitely, I think he's absolutely guilty. Yeah. It's just a very, very interesting case. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he's out now. And it's, I don't know. It's always very interesting. But but I do want to say one thing before we move on from this. Can we talk about the fucking owl? 
I mean, we can, I, <laughs> but I don't know a ton about it other than it was like the neighbor who presented this theory and then supposedly they found like a little bit of like a feather or something in her hand. That an owl flew in. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes. Cover uh, the, yeah, the, the theory. Th- that an owl, that she's like, bye, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> she walks in. I assume, let's say she leaves the door open, or this sure. owl has thumbs, one or the other. <laughs> owl flies in, and she's walking upstairs, attacks the back of her head. Yeah. And, like, she grabs a feather, dies from this owl attack, and the owl flies away without disturbing anything else. It just wanted to attack her, <laughs> fly away, that's it. I know. What? I know. It sounds like a bunch of horse shit. But supposedly, like I was saying, the neighbor's the one that presented that theory. And it's mentioned only in, like, one line in the documentary. Because, like, it came in before the end of the first case. But, you know, the the defense had already created their case. They were yeah. not going to introduce this to sway it or to do anything. Like They are just like, no. Yeah. Um... But yeah, it's just really stupid. Yeah, and I I don't under to me why is it even mentioned at all? Why is that a piece of the case? That's as ridiculous as saying like Oh, what actually happened with JFK is someone was a couple parks over flying a kite with a gun on it, and when <laughs> the wind went the gun went off and it it killed JFK. Like th- that is the same <laughs> level of believability as this fucking owl. <laughs> oh man! But that was one powerful kite that could hold that gun up. <laughs> this was a really big one. It was, a it was kite actually gun. a. <laughs> it was a kite gun. It was no. It was, it was one of those spy things. You know, I was actually picturing a hang glider that he just tied he tied some kite string to. Put a gun on, you know. But oh anyways, the staircase. Um, well, transitioning now into the episode. Yes. Our topic this week, um, I picked this one. I was mm-hmm. the loser. Loser. And, you know, last week we did a really... Uh, I, okay. Last week we did Survivors. Yes. So it was a little bit lighter but not really. Not really, because um, both of the cases were dark as fuck. They were. But they survived in the end. They which survived. Which is... It's big. That's nice. Yes. That's... what. Well, so, that's not. That's huge. It's like, huge. having them survive. That's great. But, um... But we're taking a pivot from that, pretty much, in the complete opposite direction. We really are. We, we're like, oh, that was nice, that was lighter. Let's go for the darkest turn we can make. So, for that turn, I picked Kids Who Kill. Mm. And this was a very interesting topic to research. There's mm-hmm. um, definitely a few higher-profile cases of Kids Who Kill, yeah. and... This, of course, introduces the whole, at what point should they yeah. be um, judged as an adult well, that's... versus... And, and I'm sure that plays mm-hmm. a part in both of our cases. Yeah, well, that's something that I, I just want to mention even before we get into it, is that 
with this because there are cases where you know kids as young as like 12 yeah get tried as adults yeah and as heinous as some of these crimes are and they fucking are yeah there has to be a legal line like are is there some kind of profound change that goes from when someone is 17 years and 364 days old to when they're 18 no as a person you don't change right you're you know rights do you legally become an adult so i'm not sure if if when talking about the criminal culpability of it Mm -hmm. if you know we there should be that strict line of oh they're 17 or younger they're a minor they're charged as a minor or oh they're 18 and over they're charged as an adult because i can see why there would be leeway for someone who's 17 right but i can also see how in the criminal justice system you have to have those strict guidelines or you have cases where you're charging a 12 year old a you know fucking sixth grader mm-hmm. as an adult and that's mm-hmm. not okay well and just playing devil's advocate it's hard because say there is this 12 year old who does this horrible heinous crime he has no remorse at 12 Maybe you don't know completely right and wrong, but you know right and wrong you at know. that age. And um, so this kid has no remorse, and then he goes to juvie for a couple of years. Like, is yeah. that fair? Yeah, no, I agree. I think... It's so hard. It's, it's definitely a difficult area because yeah. at 12, yes, you know right from wrong. You absolutely yeah. do. But you don't necessarily understand consequences. Right, like, right. Like, you know, you may know, yes, I'm killing this person. Mm-hmm. But you may not fully understand if this person dies, this is the effect it's going to have on everyone. Exactly. Like it, it's I not totally just that. this person is gone. Yep. Things are things. Um. So, the but no, I agree. I mean, if, because are we both thinking of the same case here? The 12-year-old shooter, Snow Day kid no i wasn't thinking about that one what remind me again what that one is okay so it was i believe an episode of my favorite murder it might have been an episode of whining crime i think it was my favorite murder yeah i think oh the snow day and the Mm -hmm. neighbor and the yes yeah we were listening to it on the drive up to oklahoma last time and it's this kid who's i think 12 he might be like 10 but i think he's 12 Something like that. Um, and it's snow day. He's hanging out with his uh, a family in the neighborhoods. Neighbors have a bunch of kids. They're doing snow day shit, playing some video games. The seven-year-old daughter beats him at the video game. Yeah. And he gets pissed. And he goes home, gets his dad's Sh- like, like shotgun, shotgun out of the gun safe. Yep. Loads it, points it out the window, and like sniper style shoots her when um they're like playing in the yard yep and it it was a one of those cases where i think he was charged as an adult initially i can't remember Um, and but it went into it yes he was because they talked about he went through the motions to make sure of like you know he took the casing and hit it he closed the blinds afterwards like he it was premeditated in that sense and so they alleged that that meant he had like an the adult level of culpability for it 
Right. Um, there was a lot of controversy for it and a lot of it's actually really sad because the focus of it of the case instantly shifted from the murder of a seven-year-old girl to oh my god they're charging this child as an adult which they're both wrong one is in my opinion much more fucked up murdering a child yes but um but because of that like public um opinion swayed and i i think he spent like a couple years like two three years in juvie and got out I just feel like the differences between being charged as an adult versus being charged as a child, it and this is very much a generalization, but it's like life in prison versus two years in juvie. Oh, like it's how insane. do you compare those two? And so that's that's one of the issues I have with this is that I agree. I don't like children being charged as adults. Yeah, because they're they're I, not. They're not adults. They're not. There's there's a reason you legally become an adult at 18, and when you're younger than that, you are legally not an adult. Yes. But I do think, you know, there needs to be a line. Mm-hmm. And then I understand, I will say, I understand 16, 17-year-olds being charged as an adult. Oh, Depending completely. on the crime. Completely. But I do feel like for those that are 10 to 13, 14-year-olds... Mm-hmm. There needs to be something that's a little bit more strict than a couple years in juvie. Yeah. I think it should definitely... Well, first off, I I definitely agree with the 16, 17-year-old. But then is the line, well, okay, well, it's different between a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old. No, I know. I mean, 15 it, is it, where it, it gets It goes very down. Yep. Um, uh-huh. And it's... I mean, obviously, it's why they do it on a case-by-case basis. I think it definitely needs to be more rehabilitative instead of like, oh, two years in juvie. Maybe it's like, you know, 10 years in like a, not a rehab program like we think, but like. Some type of correctional. Yeah. That's not. Yeah. Prison. It's not. You did this bad thing. You're a bad person. Here's your punishment. It's more focused on like you did this bad thing, you're a child, we're going to make sure that you know the differences between right and wrong, that you have the resources to, to like, learn that shit. And, yeah. But also make sure that you're not going to be fucking a danger to yourself or society. Well, and I don't think this should be, like, some cushy, like, resort type no, thing no. either. No, I'm but... thinking, like, a... I'm and thinking like, like what prison and jail should be. Like right. just across the board. Right. But um Well, I think we are, are this close, holding fingers very close together, to going down a whole new avenue. We are. We are. And so I think it's time for you to introduce the wine because I, can do that. I want to try it. Oh my god, me too. So the wine I chose is uh again, we got it at Trader Joe's, back to TJ's. Um Good old trusty TJ's. Mm, love it. So this wine I chose is the Greenfin White Table Wine. So the bottle's interesting, which is really why I picked it up. Um, yeah. The label has <laughs> like... That's like literally the reason I pick up most bottles of wine. Oh, absolutely. Like it, the way, the label has a, um, 
like a 1960s car with the the wood sides and a surfboard on top. Oh yeah, totally. Oh my god, um, it's like family vacation style. Yeah. <laughs> um. So when I saw this, my first thought was like, okay, what is a table wine? Right. Well, I'm used to seeing plenty of red table wines, which to mm-hmm. me I always think of as a blend, but I never think of blends with whites. So what's a? Well, you can have a white blend. I I think they're just not as common. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like, well, no. I was going to say, I feel like whites are so different and reds can kind of flow into one another, but that's just not true. Reds no. are also very different. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, so what is a table wine? So it is different in the U.S. and Europe. Oh. Um. Oh. But we're going to focus on what the U.S. is because it's a California wine. So, in the U.S., table wine designates a wine style, um, which is just ordinary wine, which is neither fortified or sparkling or expensive. That's it. So, literally almost everything we drink is a table wine. So, do you know what a table wine is considered in Europe? So, in Europe, it's considered a, like, it's a classification. It's a specific classification because they have a lot more regulations on what their wine is. Uh-huh. Like, um, especially with the different, like, namings of it. Of, like, what, um, like you know, grape? if this, like, a Bordeaux wine in, has to come from the Bordeaux region of France. Right, right, Even right. Even if it's same the champagne. exact same no, 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 grapes it's... and shit from somewhere else, if it's Bordeaux, it's from here. Well, that's exactly like champagne. Yeah. Real champagne is only from champagne in France. The rest is sparkling, sparkling wine. wine. Yeah. yeah. So they're a lot more, whereas in the U.S., we don't have those same regulations. Like, nope. you buy a bottle of $4 champagne, I promise you, it is not. It is not. It is sparkling wine. It is sparkling wine. Um, so it's, its classification is like the lower end. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's the cheap wine. Cheap wine. So, yep, everything we drink um, for the most part. Yeah. So in the U.S., again, they define it as... A grape wine that has an alcoholic strength, maximum of 14% alcohol by volume, and wines that are between 14 and 24% ABV are known as dessert wine. Holy shit. Like, that's shit. the difference. 24? That's like a liqueur. That's a grape liqueur. Well, because I think even a port is like 18. Oh, God. That's just a lot. But um, table wine can also be designated using terms such as light wine, light white wine, red table wine, or sweet table wine. Uh-oh. That better not be what this is. Sweet I, table wine. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Reading it, it doesn't sound sweet. <laughs> um, but this ball in particular is made with all organic grapes. Oh, nice. Which, um, with winemaking, it's like everything in the process is organic. Right. So, which I've heard that if you are sensitive to wines, that maybe you won't be as sensitive to an organic wine. Oh, so interesting. Mm-hmm. So, another of my favorite things about this one is that it was very cheap, it was four dollars and fifty cents a bottle. Yep, um, it is a again 2016 California white from Napa, so fancy. I mean, like, I feel like it can't be bad. I know. Anything like that comes that. out of Napa, I'm like, even if it's the bottom of the freaking barrel, literally, I feel like it's going to okay. be good. Oh, my God. Is that where bottom of the barrel comes? Anyway. I um, don't know. But, no, same. It's a, like, 
how shitty are these grapes? Like, are they the ones that fell off the vine, started rotting, and then <laughs> someone came in, scooped them up? Like, it, that's why it's cheap. Because, come on. They're the ones that they pulled out of the cow manure after the cows had eat grape skins. Wow. That's, you know what? I promise you it's not, because I promise you if that was a thing, it would be expensive as fuck. And yeah. people would be like, oh, it's so fancy. Yep. It would have a, it would have a name for it, too. Because yeah. they've done that kind of shit. Oh, yeah. There's, like, cat shit. poop coffee and all that shit. Oh. Ew! Oh, oh, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, cats, they'll feed, like, the coffee beans to, I guess, like, certain <laughs> species of cat. <laughs> and they, God. like, dry their poop out and grind it, and it's coffee, and it's fucking, like, $50 a glass. And I'm like, no. Absolutely not. I am absolutely horrified and disgusted, <laughs> and I cannot so, believe we just talked about cat poop coffee and i can't believe that's real yeah so you know kind of bound going off of oh cat poop coffee God. let's go into what the flavors of this <laughs> white table wine God. are um so according to the bottle it's an intense orange blossom and honey aromatics while delivering a full rich body with a core of pear and nectarine flavors followed by a smooth aftertaste that's long and focused well i don't Cool. I can't believe that you are getting me to drink all of these white wines. Yeah. We will have to see. I am willing now to try an unoaked shard. Yes. Uh, I have had many a Chardonnay in my life and enjoyed none of them because they've all been oaky. Yep. And I can't do the oaky, buttery... (laughs) No. But... I'll save you from the butter, but I'm going to get an unoaked shard for one episode. Okay. Is it a plastic cork or is it a cork cork? Oh, it's plastic. Yeah, that's what I thought. Totally plastic. Oh. Let me smell it. it smells nice. It does smell nice. So, okay, let's pour. It's too bad that this cork isn't, like, cork cork, because it's kind of cute. Green thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, smells like white wine to me. Yeah. I think... We'll see. All right, right, cheers. cheers. Okay. It's sweeter than I thought it would be. Oh. Wow. You definitely get the honey. Yes. That was the first thing that I tasted was the honey. It's not bad. It strays dangerously close to tasting like a Pinot Grigio. Yeah. But it's not. It's it's lighter than that. It's almost like a less sweet Riesling. Yeah. That's why, to me, it's, like, really sweet. Yeah. It's not bad, though. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at it. It's definitely... It's a good porch wine. You know, I was just thinking, this would be really, really good with some Prosecco. Mm-hmm. <gasps> like, mixed together. Ooh, you know what this would be perfect for? What? Making a white wine sangria. Yeah, it would. This would be great. And it's cheap. Well, we're going to remember that then. Yeah, because... Well, let us know if you like the sangria recipe, because I have one for white wine um, that uses fresh peaches um, and sparkling water in it to make it bubbly and fresh and delicious nice so let us know if you like that we'll we'll do an episode where we do white wine sangria 
and post the recipe on Patreon as well. Yeah. So. Totally. Okay. So with that, we have our wine. We have our topic. Let's get into your case. Okay. So the case I picked is um, one that happened in Jacksonville, Florida. Ooh, Florida. This, yep, so this is a Florida wine. The sources that I picked was... <laughs> <laughs> I picked these sources. You the did. sources that I used uh, were Wikipedia, this website called Alcation. Like, kind of like the word vacation, but with owl, so Alcation. Alcation, And CBS News. Okay. And The Sun. Just The Sun itself. Not the newspaper, <laughs> just the sun. Yeah, yeah. No, the sun told me some things, and oh, so I... He's really hot. Yeah, the sun. <clears throat> so, this story is about Josh Phillips. He was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1984. Mm-hmm. His father, Steve Phillips, a really big guy, 6'6", six, six, um, uh, very much dominated his wife and his son and had this violent temper. Mm. So this is how Josh grew up. Josh, in an interview, was saying that he recalled that at one point in his life, he walked into his parents' room to see his father's fist smashed through the wall. And he he was terrified of his father ever since then. Just walking in on this very violent moment. Yeah. And... um, Steve, the dad, gave his son, Josh, a lot of very strict rules that he must follow. Um, Steve was also a drug addict and an alcoholic. So that is how Josh grew up, how Mm -hmm. he was raised. He just had, you know, this fear around a lot of violence. That's what he knew. Yeah. On November 3rd, 1998, at about 5 p.m., a little girl named Maddie Clifton disappeared. How little? She was eight years old. Mm. And um, the neighborhood put together, like, search parties. Obviously, the police were out searching for her. This yeah. was this large effort, you know, posters, picketing, like, door to door, just yeah. trying to find where she is. And early on... There was a suspect who happened to be a neighbor named Larry Grisham. And this guy had been arrested twice in the past between the ages of 15 and 20. No, sorry. This guy had been arrested twice in the past, about 15 to 20 years earlier, for sexual battery cases. Okay. Um, But in both of these incidents, the charges were dropped. But okay. with that being his background, he was a neighbor, she was missing, he was their first suspect. Yeah. He ended up failing a lie detector test in Maddie's disappearance, but he provided an alibi. Okay. So, police eventually, you know, dwindled down their search for Maddie, but the community didn't. The community, including over 400 volunteers, persisted Fuck. trying to find her. Um, they offered a reward of $50,000. Later, it was doubled. And, Damn. Yeah. So they are just doing everything they can to find this girl. Yeah. And Josh was one of the volunteers. Mm-hmm. So mm. um, 
eventually the FBI became involved. I was just saying, I can, I think I can see where this is going. Yeah. The FBI became involved in the case. Flyers were distributed all around the town, including at a local um, Jaguars game. The television series America's Most Wanted also offered to broadcast the story. So they're just trying to figure out where this girl is. Yeah. So about a week after Maddie disappeared, Mm -hmm. um, Josh's mom, Melissa, went into his room to clean it up. You know, dirty boy's room. How old is Josh at this point? Oh, he's 14. 14, okay. He is 14 years old. And so... Obviously, you can imagine how yeah. dirty a 14-year-old boy's room is. You can really imagine. You were a 14-year-old I can just remember. Yeah, you can. You're like, I don't have to imagine. I can remember. Yeah. Ooh. Um, so she goes into his room, and she's kind of cleaning up, and she saw that his waterbed was leaking. Mm. And um, upon further examination, she discovered that Maddie's body had been hidden inside the base of the waterbed. What uh, the fuck? So what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. So it was not the waterbed that was leaking. It was oh. It was her body decomposing. And the whole reason she had gone into the room to clean it is because she smelled this foul odor and she thought it was just like boy. sweaty. Yeah. Oh boy. my god. Shit. Nope. So Maddie was hidden inside the waterbed and had been there for a week. Oh my god. Melissa made the difficult but quick decision to run outside and immediately alert the police. Oh, Because they were still there. Yeah, They were, you know, in the neighborhood. So, because, and and I think I say this later, but um, Josh lived across the street from Maddie. Okay. See, I can, as much as you could say, well, obviously you find a body, like, you're going to go to the police. Obviously. Is still, yeah, that has to be a very difficult decision. It is, and not all parents do. And no. there are multiple cases where the parent then becomes involved because they're trying to save the kid. Yeah. And well, you had a murder mini that was like that. Yeah, yeah, the one from Oklahoma. Exactly. Yeah. It was like the mom and her boyfriend tried to help these their well, the son and the son's friend like dismember body parts and get yeah. rid of them. And it like it's, it gets intense. That's a lot, but you know. I don't think anyone could blame a parent for needing to take a second. Obviously, no. the right thing to do is exactly what she did and go alert the police. Yeah. But that that'll be hard. That's your child you've raised for, mm-hmm. you know, for her 14, 14 years. years. That's her son. Well, so this was a school day. Um, Josh was arrested that same day at school and everyone was just completely shocked. Was he not the... No, he had no history of violence. No one would ever believe that he was capable of murder, but clearly he Mm -hmm. was. So, as Josh is being held in maximum security um, before his first court appearance, it ended up being determined that Maddie's cause of death after the coroner examined, medical examiner, are those the same thing? They're different, aren't they? No. I don't I think I don't think they're different. I think they can be different. I think they can be different. Because I know the head coroner is the chief medical examiner. Right. Okay. I know. Well, because the second I said the word coroner, I was like, huh. 
But I'm pretty sure they're the same thing. I think so. All right. Y'all can fact check us. Yeah. Let us know. Um, so they determined that Maddie's death was due to stabbing and clubbing with a baseball bat. Fuck. So when Josh, obviously, being asked, like, what the fuck happened? Mm-hmm. Why is she dead? What the fuck did you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, he claimed that one afternoon... He was home alone, and Maddie came over to the house. Apparently, they would spend time together. They were kind of like neighborhood friends. Um, okay. So, Maddie... I don't, I don't necessarily think that's weird. No, I don't think it's weird. Like, like 8-year-old, 14-year-old, but if y'all are neighbors, that's I get it. If you're neighbors and that's who you're used to hanging out with, it's not weird. Um, so, Maddie came over asking Josh to come outside and play baseball, and... He he agreed, even though he's was not allowed to have friends over when his parents weren't home. And so he's kind yeah. of already nervous because yeah. he's breaking the rules. Um, as the two of them were outside playing baseball, Maddie threw the ball at him. He hit the ball. And after it hit the bat, the ball flew forward and hit Maddie in the eye. And so okay. it caused her to bleed, and she's crying and screaming, and Josh is panicking because he is like, oh my god, my dad is going to be so furious when he comes home and he sees, like, what happened. Um, yeah. So he takes her inside, and, you know, he kind of drags her in there. Because, again, she's, like, bleeding, crying. Um, she's hurt. And he strangles her with a phone cord for about 15 minutes to make her stop crying. Oh, my God. Um, Soon after that, he hit her again, but this time with the baseball bat and stashed her her under his bed. But what about the stab wounds? Um, I'll get to that. Okay, okay. So, not long after, Josh's father got home and... um, Josh, like, went into the living room or whatever to start hanging out with his dad. Just, again, trying to be, like, cool, casual, like, nothing yeah, happened. Yeah, nothing happened. It's just normal, whatevs. Yeah, when he went back into his room, he found that Maddie was still alive, moaning under his bed. Oh, my God. Because she's hurt. Yeah. So he removes the mattress, stabs her 11 times. Fuck. And this kills her. When he was asked years later how he could go on with his life for that week with her body hidden in his bedroom, um, he just said, even though he made no, like, conscious decision, he ignored it. Like, he just, he ignored it. He didn't want to face the consequences. He was in denial. He didn't believe this was real. And so he decided to just live in this fantasy world like nothing had happened. See, that's... I think this is a... And I I don't know, moving forward, how the court's going to do. But that's that's something that I very much can believe and expect from a 14-year-old. Like, it's it's so easy as a kid to delude yourself. Mm -hmm. And to... Ignore some. I mean, children do it every day. Children from, you know, kids who grow up in abusive homes mm-hmm. and don't 
realize it until they're in their adulthood. You know, living in your own world and just creating that space where reality can be separate, like, that's something kids do all the time. Yep, so absolutely. I, I, I get it. I could see how that would be... How someone would say, oh, obviously you're, like, a monster because you murdered her and was under your bed. Like, what the fuck? You're probably a sexual sadist. Like, something. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, not innocently, but, like, whereas, no, he did it and literally, like, blocked it out. Like. Yep. Yeah. He was just like, nope, I don't want to, I don't want to believe that that happened. And, you know, when he was asked why it happened, like, why did you do this? Um, he said he, he didn't know. And that he wishes he could take it back. So, the following year, when Josh was 15 years old, he was charged with first-degree murder in the death of his 8-year-old neighbor and playmate, Maddie Clifton. Due to the severity of the crime, he was charged and tried as an adult. So he's at that age that we just talked about, yeah. where 14, 15, where it's like, how different is that from 16? How different is that from 16, but how different is that from 13? Yeah. So he's in that middle area. <sighs> That's the hardest area. Yeah. They moved his trial to a different county due mm. to just the flood of media coverage, obviously, that was in Jacksonville. Yeah. Um, so he ended up being convicted of first-degree murder. And on August 20th, 1999, he was sentenced to life in prison without chance of parole. Fuck. Um, mm-hmm. He was not eligible for the death penalty in Florida because he was under the age of 16 at the time of the crime. God, okay. So that is how Florida determined his sentence. Um, you know, it, it it appeared in the sentencing and throughout the trial that this murder was motivated by Josh's fear of his abusive and alcoholic father, who would have been really pissed off if he found out that Maddie had been in the house. Yeah. So, kind of aftermath, since the trial, Maddie's parents have divorced. Um, yeah. It just, her death destroyed their family completely. Yeah. Well, I think there's a statistic that it's like half of all marriages don't survive the death of a child or something or higher percentage than that. But no, I believe I, it. I a hundred percent believe it. Yeah, I do too. Um, Josh's father ended up dying in a car accident and Josh has been in the appeal process pretty much mm-hmm. ever since he was sentenced. Um, in 2002, an appeals court upheld his original conviction. That was the first one. Yeah. In late 2004, his mom, Melissa, began seeking a new trial. And while, you know, I didn't read this, but I feel like, you know, she knew he was guilty, but it's the life sentence that they're getting at. Like, yeah. that's no chance of parole. Life yeah. in prison. Well, because he went to, he walked into a presuming maximum security jail at the age of 15. 14. Well, he, he was 15 after the trial. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah. That out. Say yours again. Well, he walked into presumably a maximum security prison at the age of 15 after the trial. Right. And so, I don't know. That would be an interesting one. I don't know. I don't, because he did murder her. He m- murdered an eight year old girl. Mm-hmm. And 
would this be any different if someone, you know, was in a gang and was 14 and shot an eight-year-old? Like, is that... So... Well, and Melissa, his mom, she believed that his age at the time of the murder should have been taken into account um, in regards to his sentencing, and she doesn't feel like it was. Yeah, Um, that's fair. And in the meantime... Two of the officials who were involved in his sentencing have said that they've had some second thoughts. Mm-hmm. In 2005, new hearing dates were set for him. Okay. And um, the goal at that time was to at least have the charges reduced to second-degree murder so that he might one day be eligible for parole. Yeah. So, fast forward a little bit. He's still in prison. And if you remember, I brought this up in a past episode, but in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court made a ruling that sentencing a juvenile to yeah. a mandatory life in prison without parole is unconstitutional. In the Dartmouth murders. Yes. Yeah. So that is playing a role again in this case because Josh happened to be, you know, one of these yeah. children whose cases was being reevaluated. And I, I read some information... Um, just about, you know, the Clifton family having to go back to trial and the sister being involved. And apparently in this second trial, there were things, things started to come out that maybe there was a little bit of a sexual nature that happened because, uh, Maddie was found without her pants on. Mm -hmm. She had no pants, no underwear, just her shirt on and supposedly he was, you know, very sexually aroused during this whole scenario. Yeah. So where that new evidence came from and why it wasn't in the first trial, I'm not sure. But his trial uh, mm. began again at the end of 2017. And that was when this second trial finally did happen. Yeah. Despite the Supreme Court ruling in November 2017... Josh, who was at that time 33, or I guess at this time 33, was resentenced to life in prison. So it's one of the ones where, remember when I couldn't find the outcome of the case for Robert? Yeah, in the Dartmouth murders, yeah. Right, but I kept saying there was a possibility he could end up with the same sentencing. Yeah. Well, that's what happened to Josh. Oh. He had, he ha- you know, he had that trial that he had the right to because they determined it was unconstitutional. Yeah. And through everything, they still determined that that life sentence was appropriate. Yeah. And, um, but I can see how, I feel like it would be very difficult retrying a case for a child who murdered someone when they're sitting there as a 33-year-old adult. Well, oh, absolutely. And this is something I was thinking about when you mentioned, like, you know, they pushed the trial back and, you know, he was 15. Every day they push the trial back, he becomes more of an adult. Yeah. He looks like more of an adult. Yeah. So when the jury is sitting there looking at exactly this person sitting there, they're not looking at the 14-year-old that did it. No. They're now looking at... A 33 year old man and exactly. they're not gonna they're gonna see oh he did that when he was 14 well we all did stupid things when we were 14 but we didn't do this 
They're not actually looking at a child. I know. And that is one of the things that, you know, I, I very much appreciate, obviously, the Supreme Court ruling that, that was unconstitutional and they, these cases should be retried. But when you think of the reality of retrying a case when these kids are now adults, yeah. the jury, like, I feel like that is something looking at a 14 year old sitting there mm-hmm. being accused and looking at a 33 year old knowing they did this when they were 14. I don't think your mind can very accurately, and this is just my opinion, but I feel like your mind can't, it can't recreate the feelings no. that it would if you were actually looking at them as a child. Yeah, if you, because you, as a as a jury now, are looking at, okay, we're going to be sentencing this 33-year-old man to this sentence. Mm-hmm. They're not looking at it as we're going to be sentencing this child to this sentence, right. which... It's good. I think it's amazing that they're getting the chance to retry these. Yes. Um, and obviously, just with how things work, with how time works, they're not going to be able to get the perfect, completely unbiased chance. No. But they are getting a chance. They are getting a second chance. And, uh, you know, it would be interesting to look up and see how many cases, like how many child criminals have been released from their life sentences because, because of, of this, this case. Yeah. yeah that would not be. this case because of what or the be- supreme court yeah, yeah yeah because of the supreme court case oh yes yes so um yeah another thing that i feel like would be really interesting and this is kind of a tangent but i've always been very interested in jury selection mm-hmm. because like i feel like when we watch all these documentaries and i see these jurors who are being interviewed, like, after the fact, obviously. Yeah. They just seem so biased. And I'm like, how did you get on the jury? Oh, yeah. But I it... just want to know that process. I've never, yeah. knock on wood, except not really, we've talked about this. Well, yeah, I've never been called jury for duty. jury duty. And so I don't know the process at all. Yeah. Um, it would depend. <laughs> Can you look into what my company's benefits are for jury duty? Uh, if I'm allowed to be paid during it, because... But anyway, no, absolutely, because, but you see in shows like, oh, like the American Crime Story, People v. O.J. Yeah. They have the, like, an episode that's devoted to the jury selection and talking about how, okay, you you know, we have these people. We don't have to worry about them. Well, and it's also like the prosecutors and the defendants are involved in the jury selection. Yeah. Well, both sides are. and. They wind up having, I guess, what they see as a six to six. Yeah. Or trying to get that because they'll pick people and be like, yes, we want this person because they're obviously going to vote for us regardless of our case. Yep. Um, and it's, no, I think it's interesting. It's, I think it's fascinating. Very much so. But yeah, that was my case. Um, Josh Phillips, who murdered eight-year-old Maddie Clayton. Fuck. And hid her under his bed, which is still the most horrifying thing yeah. that I feel like I could imagine for a young child doing. Uh, yeah. I just, I can't imagine his mom finding that. I, I, yeah. I have no words. <laughs> yeah, it's the hidden under the mattress part that... 
gets me and the mom just trying to clean her boy's room and finding a fucking body. Yeah. I can't imagine that type of horror. No. That I... You're not yet done with your wine. I'm done with mine. Open the next bottle. I'm gonna... Yeah. I'm gonna open bottle two because I need it after that and I'm gonna need it for mine. I... You've been telling me how... You're excited slash just anxious and ready to tell me about your case? Well, it was one that I read a very quick blurb about it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I want to do this case. Yeah. And then as I just did more research and stuff for this, it just kept getting so much more and more fucked up. Yeah. And it's literally how, how this has not become a movie oh. blows my mind yeah and granted with that it has been adapted into a play um oh oh yeah it's well if you know. this were a movie i would not believe it i would be like okay that is so unrealistic but so i'm gonna Give myself a healthy glass of wine. Give yourself a healthy glass of wine and it gets started. You'll hear pouring sounds here in a bit when I pour myself some more. So, mine is The Murder of Shanda Scherer. Okay. So, on... Never heard of this one. Well... Buckle your seatbelt. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking get ready. Okay. So, on January 11th, 1992... 12-year-old Shanda Scherer was brutally murdered in Madison, Indiana by four teenage girls. Oh my god, is this like a Mean Girls one? Yeah. Holy shit, is it kind of like Heathers? Have you seen that movie? I've not seen Heathers, but oh my, my friend... Oh my god, you have to see Heathers. It's it's good. It's it is, a good that's total Winona 80s Ryder, right? Movie. Yes. Yeah. It's a total 80s movie, but they fucking kill this chick with a jawbreaker. Oh shit, my friend... Um, I've known her since, like, fucking middle school. Uh, fucking love her. Uh, she has been telling me to watch Heathers for, like, 15 years now. And why the fuck have you not watched it? We talked about this last episode how I do not watch movies. Oh, my God. I refuse to accept it, which is why I refuse to remember it. Okay. But uh, also, it's a really good one. If, if you're gonna watch a movie, watch a classic 80s movie. Okay. That's fair. I will say, I do... Okay. I don't not watch movies. I very rarely watch movies. And I should watch Heather's. Some of my favorite movies have been older ones, like like the fucking original Carrie. Uh, that Brian De Palma. Basic. Oh my god. So uh, good. So getting into a little bit of her background. Yeah. Uh, Shanda Sherr was born in Pineville, Kentucky on June 6th, 1979. Um, after her parents divorced, her mom remarried and the family moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where she attended the fifth and sixth grades um, in Louisville at St. Paul School. Mm-hmm. Um, she was involved in like cheerleading, volleyball, softball. Like, wow, you know. so she was like really involved. Yeah, she was like this little fucking sixth grader, like doing her shit. Yeah. Um, when her mom divorced again, the family moved in June of 1991 to New Albany, Indiana, and she enrolled in Hazelwood Middle School. Okay. Um, and early into the school year, her parents transferred her to Our Lady of Perpetual Help School, which is 
obviously a Catholic school. Yeah. That's um, there in New Albany. And um, we'll kind of get into why they transferred her in a little bit. Okay. Okay. So that's her her background. She's, you know, average little 12-year-old doing her shit. Okay. So now I'm going to get into the background on the four girls that were involved. Okay. So the first one is Melinda Loveless. Uh, she was born in New Albany, Indiana on October 28th of 1975 and was the... Oh, so they're much older. Uh, not really. This is in 92, remember? So she's, I think, 17. I, I meant then the person they killed. Oh, yes. Yeah, they're, they're like, solid teenagers. Yeah. And she was 12. Um, so Melinda was the youngest of three daughters born to Marjorie and Larry Loveless. Larry was drafted into the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War and was, like, you know, treated as a hero when he got back. Okay. Um, his wife would later describe him as a pervert who would <gasps> wear her and her daughter's underwear and makeup and was incapable of staying monogamous and had a mixture of jealousy and fascination with seeing her have sex with men and women. So. so okay. Yeah. So throughout Melinda's childhood, they lived in or around the New Albany area. Yeah. So through most of their relationship, uh, Larry was unfaithful to his wife and they often had an open marriage. Uh, they would often visit bars in Louisville where he would pretend to be a doctor or a dentist and introduce Marjorie as his girlfriend. Aww. He would also share her with some of his friends at work, which <gasps> she found disgusting. Yeah? Uh, during an orgy with another couple at their house, she tried to commit suicide, um, which oh was God. an act that she would repeat several times throughout her daughter's childhoods. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Melinda's, Melinda's childhood was fucked up. Yeah. Uh, so when Melinda was nine years old, Larry had Marjorie gang raped, <gasps> uh, after which she tried to drown herself. Um, after that incident, she refused him sex for a month until he violently raped her as their daughters witnessed. Um, they overheard it through a closed door. What the actual fuck? I he's don't a, want to hear any of this he's anymore. He's a fucking monster. He is a monster. Is he dead? I hope he's dead. I don't know. I don't know. So in the summer of 1986, um, after she would not let him go home with two women that he'd met at a bar, Larry beat Marjorie so severely that she was hospitalized. Oh my god. And he was convicted of battery. Good. Fucking something at least. Well, not enough. So the extent of Larry's abuse of his daughters and uh, other children is really unclear. Um, various court testimonies claimed that he fondled Melinda as an infant, <gasps> molested Marjorie's 13-year-old sister early in their marriage, oh and molested the girl's cousin Teddy from age 10 to 14. What? And your case isn't even about this monster. Nope. This is just Melinda's background. So both of the older girls uh, said that he molested them, but Melinda did not admit that this ever happened to her. Um, She did sleep in the same bed with him until he abandoned the family when she was 14. Um, So 
that right there tells me he probably. Yeah. So in court, Teddy, who was um, the cousin, described an incident in which Larry tied all three sisters in a garage and raped them in succession. Oh, Um, my God. However, the sisters did not confirm this account. But it uh, sounds exactly like something he would do. Yes. Um, So Larry was verbally abusive to his daughters and actually fired a handgun in Michelle, his other daughter's direction, when she was seven. Um, intentionally missing her. But God. Her. he would also embarrass his children by finding their underwear and smelling it in front of their other family members. Okay, what the fuck were these other family members thinking when he did this? I don't know. I wouldn't think embarrassed. I would think, oh my God, he Horrified. needs to go to jail. Yeah. So for two years, beginning when Melinda was five, the family was deeply involved in the Graceland Baptist Church. Larry and Marjorie gave full confession and renounced drinking and swinging while they were members. Mm -hmm. Larry became a Baptist lay preacher and Marjorie became the school nurse. What? what, When did this happen? Uh, When Melinda was five. So, in the middle of all this shit. Oh my god. Yeah, this shit's still going on. Yeah. Um, So the church later arranged for Melinda to be taken to a motel room with a 50-year-old man for a five-hour exorcism. So that's the kind of church that was. Oh, my God. Uh, Larry became a marriage counselor with the church and acquired a reputation for being too forward with women, um, eventually attempting to rape one of them. After that incident, the loveless parents left the church and returned to their former professions of drinking and open marriage. Holy shit. Yeah. So, in November of 1990, Larry was caught spying on Melinda and a friend, and Marjorie attacked him with a knife, uh, sending him to the hospital after he attempted to grab it. Um, she then attempted suicide again, and her daughters called the authorities. Um, after this incident, Larry filed for divorce and moved to Florida, which left Melinda crushed, especially when he remarried. Um, he sent letters to her for a while, which played on her emotions, but eventually he severed all contact with her. Yeah. Oh my God. So that's the background on Melinda. That's just one of the four girls. Just one. Um, so now we're going to get into the background of Lori Tackett. So Lori was born in Madison, Indiana on October 5th of 1974. Um, her mother was a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian, and her father was a factory worker with uh, two felony convictions in the 60s. Uh-huh. Lori claimed that she was molested at least twice as a child at the ages of 5 and 12. Oh, God. Um, in May of 1989, her mother discovered that Lori was changing into jeans at school um, instead of her skirt, yeah. like she should have worn. And after a confrontation that night, attempted to strangle her. Her mom did? Her mom. God. Yeah. These, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, social workers became involved and her parents agreed to unannounced visits to ensure that child abuse was not occurring. Because that's all that fucking needs to happen after you try to strangle your child. Is just like, well, we'll check in a couple times randomly. Also, now I'm seeing why you... uh have wanted to tell me about this. Yeah. Jesus. Haven't even yeah. come to your actual crime. Nope. We're 
Not even close yet. So Lori and her mother came into periodic conflict, and at one point, her mother went to Lori's friend Hope Rippey's house, which we'll hear about Hope in a second. Okay. Um, after learning that Hope's father had purchased a Ouija board for the girls, and she demanded that the board be burnt and the Rippy house be exercised. Oh, jeez. Because, yeah. So, Lori became increasingly rebellious after her 15th birthday and also became fascinated with the occult. Uh, she would often attempt to impress her friends by pretending to be possessed by the spirit of Deanna the Vampire. Okay. Which is the most 15-year-old thing I've ever heard. It is. Um, she began to engage in self-harm, uh, especially Aww. after early uh, 91, Yeah, when she began dating a girl who was involved in the practice of self-harm. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So her parents discovered the self-mutilation and checked her into a hospital on March 19th of 91, um, and she was prescribed an antidepressant and was released. Uh, two days later, with her girlfriend and her friend Tony Lawrence, who, again, we'll hear about later, uh, she cut her wrist deeply and was returned to the hospital. Jeez. Yeah. After treatment of her wound, she was admitted to the hospital's psychiatric ward, where she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and confessed that she had experienced hallucinations since she was a young child. Uh, she was discharged on April 12th, and she dropped out of high school in September of that year of 91. Um, so she stayed in Louisville in October of 91 to live with various friends, um, and she met. that was when she met Melinda. Yeah. Um, the two became friends in late November, and in December... Lori moved back to Madison on the promise that her dad would buy her a car. Um, she still spent most of her time, though, in Louisville and New Albany, and by December was spending most of her time with Melinda. So, now moving on to Hope. Yep, tell me about Hope. So, Hope Rippey was born in Madison in June of 76. Her parents divorced in February of 84, and she moved in with her mother and siblings to Quincy, Michigan, for about three years. Um, she claimed that living with her family in Michigan was turbulent. Uh, that's all she said about it. Somewhat turbulent. Okay. Um, and her parents actually resumed their relationship in Madison, Indiana in 87, um, where she was reunited with her friends Lori Tackett and Tony Lawrence, which Lori we just heard about. Tony we're about to. Yep. Um, and she'd known them since childhood. Um, oh. And although... You know, she was excited to see them again, to be in their friend group again. Her parents saw Lori as a bad influence. I wonder why. Mm, me too. Um, and as with the other girls, Hope also began to self-harm at 15. Oh my god. So, the last of the four girls is Tony Lawrence. Tony was born in Madison in February of 76 and was very close friends with Hope from childhood. Yeah. Uh, she was abused by a relative at age nine and was raped by a teenage boy at 14. Um, although the police were only able to issue an order for the boy to keep away from Tony. What? Because that's what happens. Mm. That's what, I don't want to say that's what, what happens, but um, that's, yeah, that's what they did. Fuck so, that. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. That 
pisses me off. Uh, same. I mean, like, all of this pisses me off. I'm, like, enraged at the moment. <laughs> oh, I know. I could see you kind of kind of shaking, kind of not, not wanting to hear the rest of it, but... Just yeah. making me mad. So, afterwards, she went into counseling, uh, but she didn't follow through, and she began to self-harm and attempted suicide in the eighth grade. Jesus. Yeah. So that is the background of all of them. Oh, and that now, is the background. Yeah. Now we're going to get into the events that led up to the murder. So in 1990, when Melinda was 14, she began dating another young girl named Amanda Heifrin. Mm-hmm. Um, after Melinda's father left the family and her mother remarried, she started to behave erratically. She began to fights at school. Um, she had depression, and it resulted in her receiving professional counseling. Which, God, just I want to take a sidetrack to this point at this point because it's getting a lot. But I think everyone should have a therapist. Yes, it. I've gone to counseling and therapy for for a few different reasons in the past, but. Also for just, you know, needing that extra professional someone that I can bounce shit off. Be like, I'm thinking this. I'm feeling this. And they're being like, well, what I'm hearing is this. What well, I'm feeling is this. And not, it's just so, it's so important to have that impartial professional person. Right. And aside from the fact that they're this professional and like that they have a little bit more knowledge into, you know, how to assess the things that you're saying, but also having just a third party Mm -hmm. that is not related to anything. Because I have gone to my therapist and I am so quick to tell her my deepest, darkest secrets. Oh, absolutely. And like, I remember when I did that and she was like, you're so, you're so forthcoming. And I'm like, well, like, I didn't say this, but I'm like, well, this is your job. Like, why wouldn't I tell you? Like, you are the person I can tell. Yeah, well, you are the person I can say these things to. I know it's a safe space, and I know you're going to help me work through these thoughts. Well, it's also one of those things that's like that, even though you're telling them your deepest, darkest things, you're telling them fucking everything, things you wouldn't tell your spouse, right? Um, they also like so they know they know you, but they don't know you. Like they they don't know your friends. They don't know anything about you other than what you tell them. Yep, and so they know you. You're just you're able to it's so important to find someone that you're comfortable with and you're able in that space to openly talk to them because friends are great resources but even with our best friends we 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 have to you know we change how we say things or what we say depending on who they are and that's you know that's everyone does that everyone does that but also it is just so important to have someone to talk to and don't ever feel like that makes you weird no like it is so healthy it is one of the healthiest things you can do for your mind Mm because you think about it we take care of our heart by eating better food we take care of our liver drinking less (laughs) sure we're drinking right now but like you take care of your body but that's how you take care of your brain yeah and people don't i i feel like people don't think about it that way of this is about your brain's health and taking care of you and your mind. No, like absolutely. You have to take care of that organ, too. Absolutely. And it's it's one of those things that there are 
so many resources out there. I mean, if it's, you know, there there are suicide hotlines, but there are also therapy hotlines where, you know, if you're like, well, I, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm a bother to a suicide hotline. I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm there yet. There are therapy hotlines. There's online therapy where you can like Skype with um, a therapist and like set up regular appointments. And then there's also the in-person and stuff. But yeah, there's so many different options and so many different levels of affordability that I just, I just think it's so important that people take advantage of that. A hundred percent. I agree. Um, so jumping back into this oh, yeah. mess. Um, so in March of 91, uh, Melinda disclosed that she was a lesbian to her mother, um, who was initially furious, but eventually accepted it. But as the year progressed, her relationship with Amanda deteriorated. So Amanda and Shanda um, actually met in early fall semester at Hazelwood Junior High when they got into a fight. Um, However, they became friends while they were in detention together for the fight. Um, And later, I know, that's such a high school thing. You get in a fight and then you like bond in detention. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, And they eventually started exchanging romantic letters. So Melinda immediately grew jealous of Amanda and Shanda's relationship. Yeah. Um, In early October of 91, Amanda and Shanda attended a school dance where Melinda found and confronted them. Um, Even though um, Amanda and Melinda had never formally ended their relationship, uh, Melinda had started to date an older girl. So she's like furious that um, Amanda is dating this 12-year-old girl. And I think Amanda at the time is 14, Mm -hmm. but Melinda had also moved on and started dating someone else. So she's just feeling very controlling about her ex dating someone else. Um, Anyway, after Amanda and Shanda attended a festival together in late October, Melinda began discussing killing Shanda and threatened Shanda in public. Uh, Concerned about the effects of their daughter's relationship with Amanda, i.e., they don't want her to be a lesbian anymore. Yeah. Um, Shanda's parents arranged to have her transferred to a Catholic high school or a Catholic school in November. So that's that was when she got transferred to the Catholic school. Okay. On the night of January 10th of 1992, mm-hmm. Tony Lawrence, who was 15, Hope Rippey, who was also 15, and Lori Tackett, who was 17, drove in Lori's car from Madison to Melinda Lovelace's house in New Albany. Yep. Uh, Melinda at the time is 16. Okay. Um, so Tony, who was a friend of Lori, had not previously met Melinda, um, and Hope had met her once before, and they'd gotten along pretty well. Um, when they arrived, they borrowed some clothes from Melinda, and she showed them a knife, <gasps> uh, telling them she was going to scare Shanda with it. Um, and while Lori, Hope, and Tony had never met Shanda prior to that night, uh, Lori had known of the plan to intimidate the 12-year-old girl. Because remember, Shanda's 12. Yeah. So Melinda explained to the other girls that she disliked Shanda for being a copycat and for stealing her girlfriend, which is the most 16-year-old thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it is. 
So they arrived at Shanda's house shortly before dark, and Melinda instructed Hope and Tony to go to the door and introduce themselves as friends of Amanda, who was Melinda's previous girlfriend and Shanda's current girlfriend. Yeah. Then they would invite Shanda to come with them to see Amanda, who was waiting for them, quote-unquote, at the witch's castle. God which it. was a ruined stone house that was on an isolated hill that overlooked the Ohio River. I have to think that this is a 12-year-old girl. These, like, cool older teenagers that are apparently friends of her girlfriend are like, oh, let's all go hang out. Let's meet Amanda at the witch's house. Fuck, that sounds fun. That sounds so cool. It does. Um, But Shanda said that she couldn't go because her parents were awake. Um, and told them to come back around midnight, which was in a few hours. Oh my God. So at first, Melinda She's was so pissed at this. Um, but Hope and Tony assured her that, you know, we'll return to Shanda's later. Um, the four girls crossed the river into Louisville, Kentucky, and decided to go to a punk rock show. So eventually, they left the show for Shanda's house. And during the ride, Melinda said that she could not wait to kill Shanda. Um, however, she also said that she just intended to use the knife to frighten her. When they arrived at Shanda's house at 1230, Tony refused to go up to retrieve her. She was like, nope, I'm not, not doing that again. So Lori joined Hope and both they went to the door um, while Melinda hid under a blanket in the back seat of the car with the knife. <gasps> so Hope told Shanda that Amanda was still at the witch's castle um, and Shanda was reluctant to go with them, but after changing her glo- her clothes, she agreed. Um, as they got in the car, Hope began questioning Shanda about her relationship with Amanda. And then Melinda sprang out from the back and put the knife to Shanda's throat and began interrogating her about her sexual relationship with Amanda. As they drove towards the witch's oh castle. God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My mouth is just, like, gaped open right now. Holy shit. Yeah. As they drove towards the witch's castle, Lori told the girls that legend said the house was once owned by nine witches, and the townspeople burned the house to get rid of the witches. Do you see what I mean? Where I'm getting, I'm like, how is this not a movie? Yeah. This is, like, reminding me of, like, the craft, kind of. I don't know what the craft is. Add it to your list of another movie that's older that you should watch. So it's literally you're never gonna make it through this list. It's it's a movie about four teenage girls who are witches, and just okay. It's good. It's really good. Mm, Tell me about something that's really bad. Tell tell me the rest. (laughs) Okay. So at the witch's castle, they took a a sobbing Shanda in. Yeah. And bound her arms and legs with rope. Jesus! Yeah. There, Melinda taunted that she had pretty hair and wondered how pretty she would look if they were to cut it off, which frightened Shanda even more. Yeah, no, they fucking tortured her. Um, I wonder, like, I'm like, what were Melinda's friends thinking? Because, what the fuck? This seems to have already escalated from more than they thought they got into. Yeah, I'm... Trying to picture out what how, what was their reaction when she pulled the knife out? Yeah. Like, what were they like? Like, how was no one like, oh, fuck no, I'm out. 
Or were they all scared of Melinda? Being like, she has that knife to her throat. I don't want her to stab me. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Or were they fucking cool? Let's murder her. I don't know. Um, so Melinda began taking off Shanda's rings and handed uh, handed one to each of the girls. Um, at some point, Hope had taken off Shanda's Mickey Mouse watch and was dancing to the tune it played. They're they're fucking with her. Like totally. They're totally fucking with her. Yeah. Lori would further taunt Shanda, claiming that the witch's castle was filled with human remains and hers would be next. Jesus. Um, to further threaten her, Lori then retrieved from the car a shirt that had a smiley design on it and lit it on fire. But she immediately was scared that the fire that passing cars would see the fire. So the girls took Shanda and left. During the car ride, Shanda was continuing to beg them to take her home. And Melinda ordered Shanda to slip off her bra, which she then handed over to Hope, who slid off her own bra and replaced it with Shanda's while steering the car. Which is just fucking weird. Wait, so they switched bras? Yeah. That's really weird. I know. I don't never switched bras with another girl well i mean she she switched it with shanda so i guess i'm thinking as in like an intimidation thing but yeah no it's weird weird yeah so Lori led them to a dark garbage dump that was off a logging road uh that was in a pretty densely forested area uh tony and hope were frightened and they stayed in the car and melinda and Lori made Shanda strip naked. Then, Melinda beat her with her fists. (gasps) Next, Melinda repeatedly slammed Shanda's face into her knee, which cut Shanda's mouth with her own braces. Oh my god! Melinda tried to slash her throat, but the knife was too dull. Hope (laughs) then came out of the car to hold down Shanda. And Melinda and Lori took turns stabbing her in the chest. They then... What the fuck? How how did this happen? Where the girls just started fucking stabbing her and like this mob mentality thing. It's, that's exactly what it is. It's fucking mob mentality. Oh my god. Because before, Hope is like too scared to get out of the car. But then, you know, they're rattling her up and she's now fucking holding Shanda down while they stab her. Yeah. Um, so they then strangled her with a rope until she was unconscious and placed her in the trunk of the car and told the other two girls that she was dead. Good. I need it. I fucking need it. There you go. You are all filled up. The, t- the girls then drove to Lori's nearby home and went inside to drink soda and clean themselves off. Um, when they heard Shanda screaming in the trunk, Lori went out with a paring knife and stabbed her several more times. Oh my god! Uh, She came back a few minutes later covered in blood. God! So, at 12.30am, Tony and Hope stayed behind as Lori and Melinda went country cruising and drove to the nearby town of Canaan. Um, because... For what reason? Well, just to drive around. Because you remember being 16, 17 and just being like, I ain't clear my head. I'm going to drive those country miles. I'm just going to drive around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah. 
Shanda continued to make crying and gurgling noises from the trunk. So, oh, they're driving around with her in the trunk. Oh, yeah. Oh so Lori stops the car. They open the trunk and Shanda sits up covered in blood and her eyes roll back in her head, but she's not able to speak. Um, Lori then beat her with a tire iron until she went silent. Holy shit. Melinda and Lori return to Lori's house just before daybreak to clean up again. Yeah. Um, Hope asked about Shanda, and Lori laughingly described the torture. Uh, The conversation they had actually woke up Lori's mother, who yelled at her daughter for being out late and bringing home the girls, so Lori agreed to take them home. So the girls decided to drive to a gas station, pump some gas into the car, Mm -hmm. and bought a two-liter bottle of Pepsi. Lori then poured out the Pepsi and refilled the bottle with gasoline. (gasps) Oh, no. I see where this is going. They drove north of Madison to a place that Hope knew of. Uh, Tori remained in the car while Lori and Hope wrapped Shanda, who was still alive, in a blanket and carried her to a field by the gravel country road. Lori made Hope pour gasoline on Shanda, and then they set her on fire. Oh. My. God. Melinda was not convinced that she was dead, so they returned a few minutes later to pour the rest of the gasoline on her. The girls then went to a McDonald's around 9.30 for breakfast, where they laughed about Shanda's body looking like one of the sausages that they were eating. (gasps) They're fucked up. God. Tony then phoned a friend and told her about the murder. Nothing ever came of that. Like, just, that's, yep. So, Lori... just didn't tell anyone? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So, Lori then dropped off Tony and Hope at their homes and finally returned to her own home with Melinda, who then told Amanda that they had killed Shanda and they arranged to pick up Amanda later that day. So, Melinda, ex-girlfriend of Amanda... Calls her and is like, we murdered your girlfriend. Do you want to hang out tomorrow? I'm assuming the conversation went differently than that. But that's... Holy shit! A friend of Melinda's, uh, Crystal Wathan, came over to her house and they told her what had happened. Then the three girls drove to pick up Amanda and bring her back to Melinda's house where they told Amanda the story. Both Amanda and... fuck? Oh yeah, they're like bragging about it. Both Amanda and Crystal became convinced... When Lori showed them the trunk of the car with Shanda's bloody handprints and socks still present, Amanda was fucking horrified. Yeah. And she asked to be taken home. When they pulled up in front of her house, Melinda kissed Amanda and told her she loved her and pleaded with her not to tell anyone. Which Amanda promised she wouldn't before she entered her house. Right. She wanted to get away. Yeah. Like, of course you're going to say, yeah, of course I won't tell anyone. Yeah. Later on, on, that was all the night of the 10th to 11th. So, later on, the morning of January 11th of 92, two brothers from Canaan, Indiana, were driving to go hunting when they noticed a body on the side of the road. They called police at 10.55 a.m. and were asked by the police to return to the corpse to... So someone would be there so they'd know where it was. Yeah. Jefferson County Sheriff Buck Shipley and detectives began an investigation, collecting forensic evidence at the scene, 
And they initially expected it was a drug deal gone wrong and didn't believe the crime was committed by locals. Yeah. Because they're just seeing, like, a stabbed and burned body. Um, I can't believe they just left her body there. Like, didn't even try to cover their tracks. Nope. Didn't even give a shit. Nope. They didn't give a shit at all. So, Stephen Scherer noticed his daughter was missing early that same day. Um, He called neighbors and friends all morning, and then he called his ex-wife, who was Shanda's mother, at about 1.45 p.m. Uh, They met and filed a missing person report with the Clark County Sheriff. Um, At about 8.20 p.m., a hysterical Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey went to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office with their parents. Uh, They both gave very rambling statements, identifying the victim as Shanda, naming the two other girls involved as best as they could, and describing the main events of the previous night. Uh, Shipley contacted the Clark County Sheriff and was finally able to match the body of Shanda Scherer's missing person report. Oh my god. So, detectives obtained dental records that positively identified Shanda as the victim, uh, Melinda and Lori were then arrested the following day on January 12th. Um, the bulk of the arrest warrant was Tony and Hope's uh, statements. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the prosecution immediately declared its intention to try both Melinda and Lori as adults. Remember, Melinda is 16 and Lori is 17. Yeah. Um, for several months, the prosecutors and defense attorneys did not release any information about the case. Um, which gave the news media only the statements of Tony and Hope. Yeah. So all four girls were charged as adults, and to avoid the death penalty, uh, they all accepted plea bargains. I do want to mention here that there were a lot of mitigating factors in the trial, and that was that all four girls had troubled backgrounds with claims of physical and sexual abuse committed by a parent or other child. Tony, Hope, and Lori all had histories of self-harming behavior, and Lori was diagnosed with with borderline personality disorder and suffered from hallucinations. Melinda, who is often described as the ringleader of the attack, and definitely seems that way. Yeah, I agree. Um, had the most extensive history of abuse and mental health issues. Yeah. So all all four of these girls are fucked up. Well, like, they've, they've just had horrible, horrible upbringings. Yeah. So in exchange for cooperation, Tony was allowed to plead guilty to one count of criminal confinement and was sentenced to a maximum of 20 years. Lori and Melinda were sentenced to 60 years in the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis, and Hope was sentenced to 60 years with 10 years suspended for mitigating circumstances, plus 10 years of medium supervision probation. Um, And on an appeal, a judge reduced her sentence to 35 years. I feel like being sentenced to 60 years is an interesting number. I feel like I'm not used to hearing 60 years. Same. I feel like it's like 20 life or it's one of those where it's like 300. Yeah. So in October of of 07, Melinda's attorney, Mark Small, requested a hearing to argue for his client's release. 
Uh, he said that Melinda had been diminished by childhood abuse and that she had not been represented competently by counsel during her sentencing, which caused her to accept a plea bargain in the face of exaggerated claims about her chances of receiving the death penalty. So he also argued that Melinda, who was 16 years old when she signed the plea agreement, was too young to enter into a contract with the state of Indiana without consent from a parent or guardian, which had not been obtained. Yeah. So on January 8th of 2008, Melinda's request was rejected by the Jefferson Circuit Judge Ted Todd. And on November 14th of that same year of 2008, uh, her appeal was denied by the Indiana Court of Appeals, which upheld the judge's ruling. So Tony Lawrence was released on December 14th of 2000 after serving nine years. Oh. And she remained on parole until December of 2002. What was she sentenced to? She was originally sentenced to a maximum of 20 years. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So on April 28th of 06, Hope Rippey was released from the Indiana Women's Prison on parole after serving 14 years of her original sentence. Which was 60? Which was 60, but reduced to 35. 35, got it. Um, And a good... Uh, I think all of, yeah, all of them had the uh, option of parole. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, So she remained on supervised parole for five years until April of 2011. Lori Tackett was released from Rockville Correctional Facility on January 11th of 2018, the 26th anniversary of Shanda Shera's death after serving nearly 26 years. And is currently serving a year of parole. Uh-huh. So, as of now, Melinda Loveless is the only one of the four girls still remaining in prison. And is scheduled for release in September of 2019. Oh my so, God. in about a year. So, none of them, as it seems, are serving the full extent of their... Correct. Sentencing. Yeah. No, none of them are spending the full time there. Oh, my. So there's actually a Dr. Phil episode. Oh. That uh, has Shanda's mom and sister uh-huh. on it, going over the murder, and they actually on air confront Hope, who had recently been released. Oh, my God. And ask her about the murder. And it, I didn't know Dr. Phil did these types of things. Yeah. It was... I don't know. I have very strong opinions on Dr. Phil. I don't that like him. That seems like a very inappropriate thing to have on that show. Yeah. To me, Dr. Phil... Do like Phil, the who's the daddy shit. Yeah. Not... Yeah. To me, Dr. Phil is... He wants to be the the male Nancy Grace, except he doesn't have the legal background. Nancy Grace used to be, I think, like a district attorney in Georgia. At least. And Dr. Phil... No, like you don't have the background, the training. You're a what? A daytime TV wannabe behavioral therapist. Yeah. And you think you have the training and sensitivity and sensibility to do this? No. No. I didn't like it. And I, the way he talked to both parties was very much um I didn't. I didn't like it. He also had a um, a segment where he talked to Amanda, who's Shanda's girlfriend, and 
Melinda's ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And the whole time he's basically like, well, you know you're, it's all your fault, right? And she's like, look, when Melinda told me and sent me letters about wanting to kill Shanda, I sent them to the police. I sent them, my dad gave them to her family. Oh like, I was 14. And he's like, you didn't do enough. All of this started because you started dating her. And it's shit oh like that that I'm like, God. fuck you, Dr. Phil. Fuck you. Because, no, it's not. That's so fucked up. Yeah. But, yeah, that is, um, do you understand now why I'm like, I wanted to tell you this all day? Yes. But I, I couldn't t- until we recorded. I totally understand. Holy shit. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Also, just gonna, like, quickly buzz through post-mortem. I'm not yeah. even gonna recap mine, well, to be honest. Yeah. I feel like with just... Okay, I thought with the hiding of the body under the waterbed mm-hmm. would be insane enough, but just after hearing everything that was involved in your case, you're the clear winner. I agree. I agree. <laughs> of course you agree. It was your but story. I'm just saying, no, it just the brutality of this case. It was so It's like these girls who knew what they were doing was wrong, but because of their upbringing, maybe it didn't feel as wrong as it actually was. And it, and it was so brutal. And Shanda was so innocent and so she's young. Just, she's and a 12 year old girl who had a girlfriend. That's it. And she was tortured by these older girls. For hours. Hours she was kidnapped, taken around the city, you know, laying in the trunk of the car, bleeding, stabbed, beat with tire iron, and still alive when she was burned to death. Like that. But what gets me. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, she was so strong she was to survive all of that yes she was so strong and she tried her best Mm -hmm. seeing her family on dr phil that was heartbreaking like seeing her sister and mom ask like why did you do this and i i definitely think all four girls are at fault yeah but i definitely think that everyone involved shanda the girls, they were all victims. No, I agree. I agree completely. I don't know. I th- This is a case I do... I I would never want to be in the jury on a case like this. No. Because I don't... No, because all four of these girls had such horrendous backgrounds <laughs> that you could almost understand why mm-hmm. they felt like what they were doing was justified. Yeah. And that, but... that's what they grew up with. But yeah, but also a right. lot of people have fucked up lives and don't torture and murder a twelve yeah. year old. So it's it's one of those I'm like I don't I don't know. I'm just glad I wasn't the one who had to make the decision. Yeah, totally. But I so no, I agree. I think um, I, I I think this is far and away the most fucked up case and the hardest to research case. That I've done so far. I can definitely see why. It was... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, anyways. 
Yeah. Um, I guess we're so done. I'm yeah, I'm I'm so done. This is so done. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Yes. And don't forget to rate us on yes. all of the platforms. Yes, rate us, give us a review. Yeah, leave a review. Let us know um, what you thought. And you know, let us you know, we love we love feedback in all forms. Hey, there is no such thing as bad feedback. Just give us everything. Tell us everything. What did I you mean, think? There is such thing as bad feedback, but we would like it all. Because again, honestly, <laughs> someone saying like, oh, one star, you keep doing X and Y, it could be something we've never even noticed. And we're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that. Thank you. But also, please don't leave us one star. I mean, don't leave star. us one star. We would very much appreciate the, the five stars. Okay. Um, if you have negative feedback, please email it to us. Please send it in letters. <laughs> Blood and wine um, podcast at gmail.com. But um, again, if, if you've gotten this far, I hope you liked it. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, looking forward to chatting with y'all again next week. Yes, we are. All right. We'll see y'all later. XOXO. Blood and Wine signing off. Bye. Bye.